welcome to this CSFI and LIBF podcast, which is a rare opportunity uh, to hear from the team behind the highly valued and hugely respected ninth edition of the Insurance Banana Skins. So before we get into the matter at hand and we meet the people who are joining to me today, I'll introduce myself. I'm Helene Panzerino and I'm one of the co-directors at the Center for Digital Banking Finance at LIBF and also currently holding the baton and the CSFI uh, director role. Today, we're looking at topics that are interesting, not only to the insurance industry, but to insurance and banking and financial services in, across the board. The Insurance Banana Skins report, research and report is a flagship CSFI survey and industry research barometer on the key risks facing the industry professionals during the next two to three years. So if you like a pulse now, but also looking forward. It's market-leading research, and it covers operating risks, the public environment, economic environment, governance, and amazingly, it involved just under 600 professionals from 39 territories. That is an enormous undertaking for so many professionals to get involved and speaks volumes about how people really appreciate the report and want to express their views. Over the years, as I said, this is the ninth edition. Challenges and risks have been many, and they've jockeyed for position, climbing up and down the rankings, depending on macroeconomic conditions, the impact of uh, implementing new technologies, the changing face of data, regulations, geopolitical risks, global health risks, talent challenges, and of course, climate risks. So in the world that we're living in today, there is no uh, surprise as to why this report is also so valued because all of the risks that I've just mentioned are something that we're probably talking about every day. We just, uh, in this context, also have just coming to the end of COP28, so touching on climate as well. And this year's survey, as I said, does not disappoint. There are valuable industry insights. There are a few surprises, I think, we'll uncover as we go through the, our uh, discussion today. And confirming the fact that recently created fundamental shifts, i.e. things that happened during the pandemic, for example, are now becoming part of the new norm. So I'm not alone. As I said, we're going to get introduced to everybody, but this edition, the 2023 edition of Insurance Fanaticans was undertaken in partnership with the much valued and much appreciated support of PwC. And joining us today on the podcast are Andy Moore, Alex Juniper, Kia Patel, and David Lassels, and I'm gonna let them all introduce themselves from PwC and from CSFI as well. So before we get behind the numbers and the discussion, let's start. Andy, start, let's have an introduction from you. Well, thanks very much, Helen. Uh, I'm delighted to be here. So I'm Andy Moore, I'm a partner of PwC, and this is only my third uh, time sponsoring the uh, uh, the Insurance Banana Skins Report. So I lead the PwC response to that. And uh, it really is a great privilege to be able to do so. Uh, I lead our UK insurance risk and regulatory team. So it's very much uh, an area of focus for me specifically. I work with insurance companies all the time. And so therefore being able to get engaged with this kind of publication, uh, doing the important research that it does is is, is, is great fun as, as well as being very interesting. Thank you. Alex? Thanks, Elaine. So as Andy mentioned, absolutely delighted to um, be here today and to talk to you all about insurance and arms against reports. Uh, I'm Alex Juniper, I'm a director in our insurance risk, risk and regulatory team, uh, so same part of our business as Andy. Uh, sadly, this is only my first edition of insurance banana skins as part of the project team, so I can't claim to have all the experience that Andy does, but it's been an absolute pleasure 
uh, kind of working collaboratively with everyone on the podcast today. Uh, and I think, as Andy said, this this kind of hits to the heart of all of the conversations I'm having with my clients and just generally some of the challenges or all of the challenges we're seeing in the industry. So hugely, hugely valuable and uh, just excited to be a part of it. So thank you. Thank you. And I know we'll have examples as we go through our, our the discussion points. And I think because because you guys are at the call face and you're seeing it and you're hearing it from your clients and from your colleagues, that every all of our listeners will find it very interesting. David, I'm going to go to Kira first, and there's a reason because I want you to to lead on the next the next question after after introductions. So, Kira, can we we hear from you first? Thanks, Elaine. Uh, my name is Kira Patel. I'm a writer and consultant specialising in economics, technology, especially artificial intelligence, and uh, financial inclusion, microfinance, that kind of thing. And I'm co-author of this report. I have been since 2013, I believe. Uh, alongside David Lassels. Thank you. David, after your introduction, because also after you your introduction, we can uh, lead into the history of the reports. So, Kira, you, Kira, you mentioned you've done it since 2013. So we've got a real uh, cross of people who've been involved in it for a long time, a few years, very new. And I know, David, you were there at the start. So let's get your introduction first. Well, thanks, Helen. Um, yes, my name is David Lassels. I'm a co-founder of the uh, CSFI, which means going back 30 years, I actually calculated today. Um, and uh, we've been conducting banana skin surveys most of that time. In fact, I was totting them all up this morning, and this is the 31st uh, survey we've carried out. And it's not just insurance, it includes banking, microfinance as well over the years. Um, it's it's a rather uh, uh, unusual survey in so far as it's um, not very rigorous. It doesn't intend and it doesn't claim to be um, quantitatively very rigorous. But the, the value that it produces is we ask people to write their opinions and their thoughts. So the responses we get are in the form of mini essays, some of them, which Kara and I go through extracting the various themes. And we found over the years is this it's extremely valuable because you're actually identifying people in the industry and hearing what they have to say. And um, it has uh, achieved a certain uh, popularity, I'm, I'm very pleased to say, and I hope it's something that we can continue. Thank you. David, what, what was the impetus for starting it in the first place? I, you know, the, as you said, there's the banking one, there's, there's uh, microfinance, where into in, the future we're looking at other, other banana skins reports. But what, in this format, and actually we, we all know banana skins, so it's something potentially that we're going to trip up on, and insurance will be looking for its banana skins uh, and trying to head them off at the past. Was it meant to be uh, identifying things that that could be challenging and be a little bit preventative um was it meant also to add uh the voice of the industry talking about things that you may not hear more publicly what was the thought behind it when you started um i i, I think that the, the main driver was the fact that when we founded the the csfi my colleague andrew hilton and i we had pretty wide contacts um, throughout the uh, insurance and banking industries, partly because I'd been working on the Financial Times before then. And we were able to go directly to them and ask them, what are your greatest worries over the next two or three years? And very highly placed people would respond. And we felt that this was producing 
um, a different kind of value from other types of surveys, and it received an enthusiastic response. So it started in a way informally. We just sort of contacted people, but then over the years as it grew, we turned it into a report. Kira, can you talk to us a little bit about the methodology I mentioned, and correct me if I'm wrong, the 600 uh, and 39 territories? Yeah, well, this year we surveyed, what, 589 so almost 600 close. insurance industry experts from 39 territories, as you said, on the most urgent risks facing the industry. Um, about half were based in Europe, 30% in the Asia Pacific, and about 10% each in Africa and North America. And they came from various sectors of the insurance industry. So life, non-life, which is also called PNC, uh, composite, and reinsurance. So how it works is that respondents are asked to score 24 separate risks that we'd identified on a scale from one to five, where five is the most severe. The average scores are then tabulated into the overall rankings table. We also invite respondents to provide qualitative feedback, as David was saying, these essays sometimes that get written. So that's their general thoughts on the biggest risks facing the industry. And then also comments on the individual risks we've identified. We use these comments to inform the analysis that we write around the table. And we also quote many of them in the report, including uh, people who agree to be quoted by name with their position, institution and country. Okay, thank you. And it's, it's uh, again, um, a measure of the value of the report that people will spend the time actually writing things that are, you know, um, that matter, but not just ticking boxes is what I'm trying to say, because they're, they're taking actual time. And we know that that doesn't always, that isn't always the case. Okay. We're, we're going to get into some of the, the topics that were addressed, uh, in the report and in general that you, we've been speaking about in the industry. We'll look at cybersecurity. We'll look at, of course, generative AI and, and other AI governance risks, the impact of the pandemic. Uh, macroeconomic situation as well, not just in terms of interest rates, but but more generally. Um, and we'll start with um, something that came out in, in other surveys, but but in the past, and that was adapt or die when it came to new technologies. That in this survey uh, seems to maybe have looked at let's let's say insure techs and and maybe overstating the the impact of them. But I'd like to open that up more to a wider big tech, other tech, because as you might find in banking and finance, it's not generally the smaller tech companies that are the uh, the thing that keep people awake at night. It's the bigger tech as well. So I don't know, Andy or Alex, if you want to talk about the big tech versus insure tech. Well, let, let me start, Helen, and I know that Alex has got some important points that he'll want to make on this. So I think this question has really evolved over time, much as technology has evolved over time. Um, if you went back a number of surveys, people were very fearful about genuine disruption to the order. So would there be companies coming in to completely disrupt, you know, form big new insurance companies, if you like, trying to do insurance in different ways? And we just haven't seen that. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. A lot of barriers to entry around regulation, barriers to entry around the amount of capital that you need. But also a realization, I think, amongst many of the tech companies that they were able to be part of the infrastructure and part of the environment of insurance without being insurers. So what we've seen is a number of insure techs merge into one another. 
uh, be bought up by bigger technology companies, but also realizing that it was technology alongside and within the insurance industry that was going to make a difference rather than technology completely displacing. That could change as we move into the world of generative AI. So I'll just I'll, I'll let that one develop in other questions. But what we have therefore seen is technology really changing within the uh, within the insurance industry. Insurers have a lot of legacy technology. If you imagine insurance policies run for an awful long time, so if you wrote a life insurance policy in 1970, it is very possible that that policy still exists now. 53 years later, you probably didn't have the same technology in 1970 that you do now, and therefore the challenges and the risks that go with it. Well, I say you didn't. Some people do, <laughs> and maybe that is part of the challenge. But there's a lot of legacy technology which is needed replacing, and it's made technology an enormous risk in the insurance industry, as well as an opportunity. So I think that that risk of adapt or die, people have started to adapt. We're really seeing a massive focus on digitalization across the insurance industry, whether that be, you know, all the way through from reinsurance through non-life and into life, as people are seeking to make things faster, smoother, and easier for customers to engage with. But it's a but it's still a big challenge for them to do so. Thank you. And I, I think that well, and I saw from the fintech industry initially people thought, oh, you know, 2014-ish time that the fintechs were going to be the thing that everybody was worried about. But people in the banking industry were not really ever worried about fintechs. They were worried about the larger technologies. And we'll get on to the discussion around data and who's holding the data and um, uh, the accuracy of it and how we're using it. And insurance, what, what I found interesting when I was at the accelerator, in the accelerator world, was that the insurtechs were mostly started by people who've been in insurance mm. versus the fintechs where people came from consulting and saw a moment and thought they just they just step into it. Yeah. So it's um and and I as a, as an external observer of the industry, I found it was a much uh, friendlier, much more collaborative environment, much more quickly than it was for banking and for fintech, for example. Well, I will always say that as a passionate advocate <laughs> of the insurance industry, it's a wonderful place to work. <laughs> Um, and therefore, that, your, your comment makes no surprise to me. It looks that way from the outside world. Alex, did you want to add to this? I, I think I, I was more just kind of reflective, Helen, then on some of the kind of more specific risks um, in relation to some of certainly the more emerging technologies that we're, we're starting to see. And I think um, one of the points that I know we've discussed a lot in the background, but I dare I say might mention for the first time on today's podcast is almost the interconnectivity of some of the risks. And I think they've always been interconnected, but but certainly coming through from this year's report and the results, I think we've all kind of got to the point where we're saying, well, they're more in interconnected than ever. And um, I mean, I, I, I might just touch on briefly generative AI, and I know we're going to go into it in a little bit more detail, but if I if I pull out some of the examples, and certainly we're seeing some of our clients think about at the moment, um, there is everything from the kind of the regulatory implications. We we know for a fact more regulation will be coming down the pipeline. That is very much emerging. How do you stay on top of it? It's it's, it's bread and butter for most of the companies in terms of regulatory change, but it's it's still a challenge. There's the secondary kind of regulatory impacts then, in just to, in terms of as you start to use new technologies and again thinking about generative AI, what are the, the 
impacts of that on your customers, for example, on some of your internal processes. We can think about some of the operational resilience challenges, the customer impact of uh, record-breaking uh, claims decisions, as we've recently seen uh, from, from Lemming 8. Uh, I think settled a claim in two seconds using generative AI. Um, three, two, we expect it'll bring a whole host of different challenges in terms of skill sets. And I think, again, you can link that more broadly to technology. Whilst technology is a fantastic opportunity for insurers, uh, we have to have people who understand the, ch the challenge, can build a solution, implement it, manage it, maintain it. Um, and again, I think there's some questions out there. Andy touched on there are some incredible technology companies who've decided not to go into insurance but to partner with. But still, is there sufficient skill sets in the broader market to do all of those parts of the the kind of technology value chain that I touched on? Um, and I think just just finally, actually understanding the risks as the technology landscape, as things like generative AI and AI are, are used more broadly. Um, actually understanding how that will impact all of those different elements of your business to so that interconnectivity point and actually who should own those risks how do you manage those risks um if, if we use some more of the the kind of the traditional examples of your market risks your insurance risks i think uh you know we typically see insurance companies being very comfortable there is a dedicated person team function that, that owns those risks that are responsible and manages them on day-to-day -day basis um but actually, because some of these technology risks touch on so many different areas of your business, uh, I've certainly seen, and I'm working with an organization at the minute to think this through, it becomes quite difficult to point to one or two individuals and say, well, you, you own the associated risks and how should we manage them appropriately? It, it truly, in a lot of instances, becomes a kind of an organization and function by function or function-wise um, kind of collaboration. But... In the world of, you know, we, we look to have stronger governance, it's difficult to put one name against it. Um, and I think likewise, even, you know, we start to pull strings on the second line of defense, the third line of defense. How do they oversee them or the associated risks appropriately as well? As I say, huge amount of challenges, which I think insurers are, are used to working through, but that interconnectivity piece especially, I think, uh, will, will pose a challenge. If I could just add a point to that. Um, this is actually brought out quite graphically in the results of the survey where we uh, rank uh, the individual risks by their severity. That um, The competition risk is one of the largest fallers um, in this year's survey. It's gone down, I think, from fifth place to eight, am I right, uh, in, the, in that um, and the other interesting point linked to that is we've also been running, as I said, banking uh, surveys. And these have also shown that new, the new challenges which regulators or politicians are trying to encourage are also not making um, the headway because of the strength of the incumbents um, who can fend them off. Uh, so the industry is actually, in a, in a way, highly protected. So competition risk, as David talked about, is the biggest fall. It's actually gone fallen to number 16 from number eight two years ago. So that's a very notable result. What hasn't changed is that technology risks are still really prominent in this survey, as um, Andy and Alex talked about. Uh, the message is still adapt or die. But I think there's a growing view that it isn't the newer insure techs that pose the main threat to incumbents. Um, 
I've got there's a respondent from the Netherlands who said that although InsureTech has been around for several years, their success has been relatively limited. It seems that startup losses are too large, including capital requirements. And he also says that InsureTechs could be disruptive in certain parts of the chain, but balance sheet and regulatory requirements will continue to be a hurdle. So I think that was a very prominent theme in this survey. Rather than the insurtechs, it seems that the main threat comes from the big insurance incumbents who are able to invest heavily in tech and take an insurmountable lead over their competitors, or even from the likes of Amazon and Apple and Google with huge numbers of customers already coming in and picking off the most profitable parts of the um, insurance industry. So uh, one respondent from Denmark saw the possibility for one or a few dominant players that will succeed with their transition, while the rest of the companies will fall behind in a way where they will not be able to catch up to the market again. I just wanted to come in on that. I think I, I completely agree with all of that. Seeing that in practice, what we have seen a number of insurers do is break out bits of their business in order to try and remove them from the sort of normal basis. So how do you free them up from this legacy technology and try and put them onto a starting, you know, a different starting base? So we've seen it in the uh, global specialty market where people have started to put parts of their business off to one side, run them semi-autonomously from within groups. We've seen it particularly in the Lloyds market where people like Brett have set up the key syndicate which is a you know powered by Google. It's a fully algorithmic syndicate, and they've put that under a slightly separate management structure. We've seen it with other some of the brokers where they've tried to set these points up, and 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 as Chaos says, rather than these being sort of fresh startups, they've got all of the insurance industry background, but they need that different environment, free of the reg- not completely free of the regulator, but free of the same balance sheet regulatory structure holding it back and allowing them to be a little bit more innovative, a bit more entrepreneurial, and, and maybe allowing that technology to flourish in that environment rather than be stifled. And I, and I think that that's a, almost a logical progression from the combative environment where you may have seen when competition was more up in the eights uh, versus 16 ranking, and we were all thinking about the new technologies or the new technology providers like the insurance that were coming onto the market. It's it's almost like one can't live without the other, but it takes a while before all the, the noise dies down and everybody kind of gets it, realizes that there's a way to take the best, put it into a structure that gives it the freedom to, to explore and to fail within a regulatory environment and come out with something that really is what the customer wants. You, we, we've we been touching on technology and, and Alex, you mentioned the, uh, it's going to become like the Brexit word. It's going to become like the B word. It's going to be the G word. You mentioned the generative AI word. <laughs> so let's let's get into that because the implications for it, obviously it's it's all over the media. Uh, everyone is is you know had a, had a chance to have a go at it whether and I think you guys have a closed generative uh, AI environment at PwC uh, to experiment with in also. Um, there's lots of discussion around should we regulate it? The government is looking at the safety of it. We're having summits all about it. You spoke about the ability for an insurance claim to be insurance, well, as the insurance policy to be bought, for example, using Gen AI, all the way through to the claim being, or using AI in general, all the way through to the claim being um, reconciled or or closed. But 
the black box and the open nature and the opportunity for nefarious players, some people see AI as a very positive thing. Some people see AI as a very negative thing. And it'd be interesting to see what the um, the survey respondents said and also how you are seeing it uh, in industry as well. So maybe we can start with the survey respondents. The first thing, it's, it's creating an enormous buzz. So AI is a huge unknown. And I think generally the insurance industry is quite well known for being conservative when it comes to adopting new technologies. But you did get a sense from the comments that this kind of sense, well, if we don't do this, our competitors will adapt or die again. AI is a major part of that conversation. It's seen as an opportunity as well as a risk, but the risks are getting a lot of attention, um, particularly the difficulties in regulating AI, the opacity of black box models and algorithms, and also potentially systemic risks that could arise from over-reliance on interconnected data sources. Um, we had a respondent from Hong Kong who said, I actually see the risk versus reward of generative AI as being much more skewed towards risk. Uh, the potential for profound and rapid social change combined with a much less agile legal and regulatory environment creates a big potential for risk pools to rapidly emerge or shift where the insurance industry is unknowingly exposed. So again, you know, you have these these common themes, interconnectedness, risk pools, and just this unknown of AI pervading everything. This is the first year in which we've um, asked our respondents to rate artificial intelligence, and we stack it up there with no idea where it was going to come out on a scale of 1 to 24. Um, it came number 7. Uh, which we would rank as a sort of medium-high risk. It wasn't in the top five, um, but it, it was certainly poking its head up, and I would expect, actually, the next time we do it, it'll be higher still. Yeah, and one thing I'd add to that is, it, you know, it wasn't in the top five, and maybe a lot of people didn't really know how to rate it, so kind of reverted to the default. But in terms of the number of comments, it probably would have been up there. And actually what you both mentioned takes us back to the interconnectivity risk that Alex mentioned earlier, but also I was thinking about the timing uh, and the things that have happened since, uh, for example, you know, we've had recent news reports of the CEO of certain companies leaving and then coming back the next week uh, back into their role when it comes to AI. So there've been a lot of things that have happened probably since the survey first went out. And, and I think that the next edition will be very interesting to see if how they've impacted people's thought process and technologies and whether or not more people will go for the internal ring fencing. But this is this is in your own organization, but all of your vendors, suppliers, customers, and users, everyone's using generative AI in the chain. And 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 I, I'm curious from an from the insurance side, you know, what 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 are you guys hearing, Andy and Alex? What are you hearing? within your organization, but also within your client base? Certainly, Helene, if I think about um, client base, it was interesting here to hear that kind of uh, quote that you pulled out from from one of the participants around, well, actually, it's a risk-reward balance, and it, it feels like the risk is kind of really weighing it and, and winning that kind of battle at the moment. Um, I think inevitably, as we've all touched on, everyone, certainly all of the clients that I'm talking to, um, have 
generative AI as a kind of a hot topic. I think everyone sees the real potential and opportunity here, whether it be for, as I say, kind of internal efficiencies through to uh, a USP in terms of customer experience, customer journey, even dare I say customer outcome, depending on how good it is. Um, I think that being said, certainly all of the companies that I've been talking to, it's a real watching brief. Um, there is that kind of level of caution and an understanding that this is something completely new and maybe not, dare I say, even fully understood at the moment. Um, we see a lot of kind of working groups, much like we're doing internally, um, trying to pick one or two uh, problems, challenges, and see if they can use uh, the, the technology to support, whether it be developing, as you kind of touched on, and then the equivalent of a kind of a, an internal chat GPT style system, which might be for uh, policy questions, queries, uh, through to, as I say, the kind of the direct customer experience, uh, whether you use it on underwriting, processing claims. Um, so I, I think personally, huge, huge opportunity out there. It's just truly whether or not our clients, ourselves can actually get to get to grips with those risks. Um, if I think about a, a quote which I've heard Andy use a few times, and I'll kind of twist it and tweak it a little bit here. Certainly in the insurance market, managing risks are our, that is our client's business. They're extremely good at it. So, um, you know, if, if there were there was an industry well placed to kind of take up the challenge, I think insurers will be at the forefront of it. And as I say, I think there's a lot of opportunity in their business models. Um, I guess just touching on something I mentioned before as well, it's, it's truly an organization-wide challenge as well. That's that's certainly what we're seeing. It's not just what we traditionally referred to as kind of the business or the, the, the kind of the frontline teams grappling with this. You talk to compliance professionals, risk professionals, it's top of their agendas too. And they're equally thinking and challenging themselves on how do they provide the right governance. Thank you. I just wanted to pick up one final point, just to pick up with with Alex on, on that and build on what he said. Um, you always have to remember with insurance companies, they're not always just thinking about what this does to their business. They're always all, always thinking about what it does. This is in the non-life sector to the businesses that they insure. So one huge exercise that's been conducted immediately has been a review of all of their contracts to think about how they might have insurance claims related to how generative AI might impact their underlying clients. So for example, if you were to take an example of, let's say, uh, uh, some form of liability policy, if a one of their underlying clients were to lose significant volumes of data as a result of one of their staff inappropriately using uh, generative AI, as has been well documented, actually, in some of the newspapers over the last few months, that could potentially talk, turn into an enormously costly insurance claim that they may have to pick up. So they're thinking about risk on multiple levels, not just the risk to their own organization, to their strategy, but also potentially to immediate financial loss. It's very, uh, I think the idea of education for all um, everyone working, I've, I've been looking at financial services and in, in the banking side, but all across financial services, banking, insurance, uh, the tech side as well, for understanding that, yes, the genie's out of the bottle, but that doesn't mean that it's just because 
we're watching people use it and say it works really well or I you know saved time operationally or I've been able to to do something you know uh, get a get a rough draft of something and then work on it. It is all out there in the public sphere. It reminded me a little bit of when crowdfunding first came around and people were going on crowdfunding platforms, didn't realize that once they put things up on the platform, their IP was exposed. And if they hadn't secured it beforehand, the genie was out of that bottle too. But people were like, wow, this is great. I'm going to get money from, you know, 400 people and it's going to be easy and it's going to be a, a great thing for me. But people get caught up in the euphoria without actually thinking about the implications of a public facing product although there are disclaimers all over the websites you know for these for these tech providers um and you mentioned data and i know it's something that you know that in this instance the accuracy the um timeliness the credibility of the data when we're talking about ai uh, in general um but there's the data it, there are many areas and I'm sure we talked about it in the report when it came to compliance, uh, generative AI, cybersecurity, how important the cloud, where this data sits, how important is data in all of the topics? Huge, Helen, it's the, it's the very quick answer. So you say it's interconnected and it's woven into all of those points. So if you think about data from a cybercrime perspective, obviously that very valuable personal data is one aspect that, you know, threat actors are are trying to to get their hands on to use for you know um, for, for their own for their own means. If we think about the challenges in technology, um, you know, and ability, insurers don't have a problem with the volume of data that they have. They generally have a problem with their ability to capture it all in a consistent, usable format and store it in a way that is useful to them. Um, one of the big challenges in technology, as you then noted, is the move to the cloud. Because one thing that we do know is that generative AI, as a as a benefit, as an opportunity, is really going to work best when you're cloud enabled, when you're using everything and able to harness the computing power, not just of your internal organisation, but externally. Insurers have not been quick on that uh, transition to cloud. Uh, that some have, um, but as on the whole. We still have an awful lot of people who have yet to make that real journey. With that, of course, comes different risks, which it sort of goes back into the cybercrime point. You know, the more that you expose your organization to the outside world, the more doors and windows that you create into your organization from a technological perspective, the more that the more that you know you create risk in, in people being able to access those. So really interconnected across all of those different aspects, with if you like data being the real uh, you know, the critical enabler to bring together that kind of foundation of cloud platforms and then the real opportunity which comes from, from Gen AI. Are people looking at the data from an interconnected point of view and answering the, the survey and, and the comments um, reflecting that? And then we'll get into where was cyber sitting, you know, three years ago, four years ago, five years ago, as compared to now where we're living in the middle of Scamageddon um, and and people are really having to, to take action. Yeah. Data is one of the biggest themes in this survey and has been over the past few years. In, in terms of cybercrime, it's to do with the loss or theft of potentially sensitive data, particularly, for example, health insurance. That is seen as an existential risk to a company. It's game over, you know. Um, from the AI perspective, it's, it's, it's about collecting enough data. It's also about um, 
separating the signal from the noise and identifying what's important and what isn't. There's also outside of generative AI, in past surveys and in this survey, we did receive some comment on the granular uh, segregation of risk profiles, particularly health insurance, for example, creating some fundamental um, challenges for insurance uh, business models, for example, when it comes to risk pooling. So it's, 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 another, it's another place where uh, there are some interesting and potentially challenging or even dangerous implications of machine learning in the insurance industry. I don't know if you wanted to talk more about cybercrime specifically now, we'll leave that till later. We can go to cybercrime now, that's okay. Yeah, so I'll, I'll let David uh, talk on this as well, but just a brief overview. Um, it got the highest average score, which is 3.97 out of 5, for any risk in this survey since 2011. So it's, it's big. Uh, the story is one of increasingly sophisticated hackers exploiting a variety of attack vectors, uh, different methods to break into IT systems, while insurers desperately try to shore up every potential point of entry. Uh, the difficulty is that it takes just one attack to slip through for insurers to face uh, threats to business continuity and potentially calamitous reputational damage, particularly if sensitive data is stolen, um, as we talked about. And at the same time, the defensive costs are swelling. There's a feeling that cyber criminals seem always to be one step ahead, and they're increasingly using AI, uh, which adds another degree of potency to their attacks. And then I I'm sure everyone wants to go into this, but there's the state-sponsored dimension to all of this. Um, there's just, just one quote from the report. Uh, one respondent worried about cybersecurity in a world of geopolitical upheaval. It was quite interesting to um, analyze the tone of the responses on this particular risk. And people described their concerns and the, 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 the specifics or particular types of attacks. But I detected always this slight feeling of frustration, even possibly despair, that the criminals are always one step ahead of the companies themselves. And I, I don't think, um, we only possibly had one respondent who felt that he was one step ahead of the criminals. Most of them, it was the other way around. Certainly, certainly, David, if I think about how my clients react to this topic, there is very much a realization, I think, across our client base that the, the that the, the threat actors are one step ahead and are likely to be so. So most of them now prepare for resilience, which is how do they bounce back from being breached rather than can they build the perfect wall? Mm. And, and that's certainly what we see through regulatory themes as well, which is how do you make sure that you're able to respond in the most efficient and effective manner post-breach, limiting damage, making sure that, you know, you put, if you like the crowd with the real crown jewels behind the, the the last wall, if you like, um, because the ability to you know the the, the ability to trade effectively uh, in a digital world, the ability to interconnect with your employees on a digital world, all of these things create the opportunities to allow people in. Um, there is a huge volume of um, there's a huge increase 
in the number of providers of resilience and response services now. Um, I met a group of these uh, at a recent conference I was talking to, and, and they sort of described themselves, if you like, as sort of cyber commandos, um, you know, there to be able to respond, you know, the equivalent of, you know, abseiling in to rescue in these circumstances. But you do see that that response, that able to be resilient is is, is the key key thing that, that, that insurers are focused on. It's interesting, isn't it? The, because there is a thought of, you know, hire more hackers, right? You know, and do your own internal uh, simulations and, and hacking in a safe space, um, which is the, the, I guess, the other side of being prepared, but you, but you should be prepared. And, and that, for me, fits with the, um, with the insurance industry. There's one and aspect of this risk, actually, which has also emerged as a risk in its own right, and that has to do with human talent. Mm. Um, uh, a lot of our respondents said that part of the cyber problem is that we can't get the people to help us sort it out. Uh, but it turns out that the human talent is also a wider risk. It appeared this, this year as the fifth on the list, which is, I think, uh, care can correct me, probably the highest that the human ta talent problem has ever reached. And the other interesting thing about it is that it's global. Um, we break the responses down by region, and they all said that it was difficult getting people. Now, the reasons for that... Um, there are many reasons, but one of our respondents said he felt that the insurance industry was not sexy enough uh, to get the good types of people in. I don't know what they can do about that. Yeah, and that's 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 actually something we, we do see regularly, this idea that insurance is, is a little bit boring. I know Andy would strenuously object to that categorization. I was just going to say, they haven't met the people on this podcast, have they? <laughs> um. And so it's a couple of things. It's a lack of talent in technical roles, uh, things like pricing, um, IT systems, advanced analytics, and so on. And the other thing is, it's whether insurers can appeal to the broader expectations of younger generations in the workforce, particularly because of what happened during COVID and the normalization of hybrid work. Uh, one respondent said, uh, younger generation loyalties are harder to obtain and what motivates them harder for current leaders to understand, which I think is a fair comment. Okay, given, given the opportunity, yes, I will passionately defend the insurance industry. Um, it's very interesting that when I talk to a lot of other people who've been in insurance for a, for, for, for a long time, I'm, 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 now, I'm now through my first quarter century uh, working in the insurance industry. And they all say that they got into it by accident, but now that they wouldn't leave, and so it's very interesting. I think the insurance industry has got a huge amount to do to continue to advertise itself because you find people working in the insurance absolutely love it. But there definitely is the case that those people outside do find it uh, uh, inaccessible, perhaps boring, definitely. It would be, you know, it all comes back to sort of the very grey insurance salesman that's in many people's, people's mind. Um, now, on the human talent point, that is definitely part of it. I mean, we've seen different things post-pandemic in uh, countries around the world. So with with ab uh, aspects like, you know, the Great Resignation, we saw a huge number of people deciding to make changes in the work that they would do or how they did the work uh, with shifts to either virtual or hybrid working. 
we've definitely seen those points around lack of technological skills. And in a world where it's not the insurance industry that, that alone that is looking for advances in technology, it's every industry. And in that circumstance, why go to insurance when you could go to something that perhaps seems more, more glamorous? So I do think, you know, there, there is a lot that the industry needs to do to face up to those challenges, part of which is not just flagging that we have needs, but actually making the industry more attractive in the first instance. This and this topic in and we're seeing it obviously in banking in the banking industry as well. And and I'm reflecting on people were, when we first started talking about it said fintech and technology and people were concerned in the banks that they would lose talent. And so they started to set up the kind of internal uh, moonshot incubator accelerator to give people a place to experiment, and they they you know attached them to other accelerators as entrepreneurs and residents so they could uh, find out what it was like to be an entrepreneur and and to look at the tech side of things, which had some positive uh, outcomes, I think. Although now I think there's probably a, an oversupply of accelerators internally. Uh, but the other thing is we're seeing a shift in, in the training that we provide where we're now seeing people wanting degrees in, in artificial intelligence, for example, where we would have banking knowledge on the one side and then you'd have the technology on the other side. And I wonder if the more generic technology skills and then, uh, you know, and I think back on my own my own career, I knew nothing about banking when I went to banking, but there was an assumption that I had some basic intelligence and they could teach me the industry on top of the uh, of the skills, if uh, are we looking at a future, for example, as we might be seeing in in the banking sector, where you're going to need the data skills, you're going to need the AI skills, and then you'll learn the, the industry to some extent as you go. I, look, I I think that's the case. The question again is that it just creates a bigger bigger pool of competition, right? Yeah. Um, so I think I don't think the insurance industry can can afford to be choosy in these circumstances. There are a number, though. I've seen, you know, um, you know, obviously I'm I'm based in London. There are a number of groups who've been really focused on outreach to get people into insurance earlier. So to go out to actually teach people in schools and colleges about the industry, trying to attract them in at earlier stages. We're continuing to see more opportunities for people to enter the industry before. Uh, graduate degrees, so actually through apprenticeships and other areas. So anything that people can do to try and find those routes in, I think everybody going forward is going to need much greater digital technology skills than ever before. So I think you know we continue to work with, to exist in an ecosystem whereby making the industry attractive is, is going to be critical to secure the right talent. And this, this, you know, here, here we are with the snow is falling, the flood is the floods are happening, et cetera, et cetera. There's so much around climate risk. Um, that we could unpack, but w where is is it come? Is it gone to the top uh, and come more to the forefront in this version, in this survey, in this edition? Well, th this year it comes number three, edging up from number four um, last year. It's been slowly rising over the last five or ten years. And I think the point really that 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 is worth exploring is how far this reflects insurance companies' concerns about the impact of climate change on their own operations and how much it is emerging as an underwriting risk. Um, I think at the moment, um, the insurance companies feel very concerned about the un underwriting risk because it's urgent and it's there. Uh, the impact on their own operations maybe is a longer term issue. No, I, I think 
this was in many ways the most striking result in the survey because although it's gone up one position, um, more respondents scored climate risk five out of five than for any other banana skin. And if you exclude the life insurance industry, which in which climate risk is maybe less relevant, it would have topped the overall rankings ahead of cyber risk. You know, so I think people are assigning it a real level of seriousness. Um, what's changing, I think, is that the industry doesn't see the effects of climate change, as David said, as something happening in the longer term. It's right now. So one one chief risk officer said that the longer term impacts of climate change are changing the frequency and severity of weather events, showing an increase in wildfires, convective storms, droughts impacting yields and flooding. The impact on claims is becoming more severe and apparent. And then beyond those rising costs, there's a fundamental broader question around how to price risks. And even whether many risks may no longer be insurable at all, and that the social implications of that could be enormous. Um, in a past survey, I remember a comment saying that a three-degree world, a three-degree rise over post-industrial levels, um, may not be insurable. And and this year, a, a Canadian respondent worried that um, insurers are struggling to price the risk appropriately. Moves to exit high-risk markets will reduce capacity and put more pressure on governments to insure losses in their geographies. I care. I, I think that's a you know a really interesting point. One one if I could build. I mean, we completely see this across our, our climate base. The impacts of the change in climate are are here today, and insurers are worried about the continuing changes going forward. So it, it, you only have to look at the statistics around the the number and types of catastrophic events and how they're impacting insurers right now to see that it has changed. Uh, Keo mentioned those different types of catastrophic events. If you went back 20 years, people were broadly worried about US Gulf of Mexico wind storms, the occasional cyclone, uh, and then the unknown threat of you know earthquake um, and, and, and other aspects. If you then look at what's happened over those last 20 years, and it's been a gradual increase and then a much quicker increase, is that we've started to see significant losses come from European floods, and not just occasionally, but almost every year. Wildfires in the US and in Canada. Um, we've seen these convective storms. So this is uh, a, a posh term simply for saying that there have been some very big thunderstorms which have not come about as a result of hurricanes but have caused flooding and significant losses in terms of property damage uh, across the US. And then you throw in events in New Zealand, floods in Thailand, you know, and many others around the world, often less publicized because they're not in insured locations. So we're seeing much bigger catastrophe losses even than, than the insured losses. So insurers are definitely feeling that now. And they're definitely also seeing worry about that. And, and that's why we've seen part of the reason that we've seen significant increases in reinsurance prices around these, these areas um, and also in underlying insurance prices. Uh, if I just pick up that point around government working together, in, in a number of developed uh, territories, there is history around governments working alongside insurers when you start to get 
to these levels of potential uninsurability. We've certainly seen it in the UK through the establishment of of, uh, of, of um, uh, companies such as Floodery, which came into to being, you know, after the severe flooding in 2007, the fact that there were people in the UK who were unable to afford home insurance. The cost of their home insurance was broadly the cost of their homes, and that's obviously not a viable, uh, not a viable uh, financial product. So there are abilities for governments to work alongside private insurers to try and come up with 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 remedies for that. And I think we're only going to see more of those as the climate continues to change. Very interesting. And, and uh, Andy, do you think that um, the insurance industry is, has been representing itself, for example, at, at COP28 or, or other uh, forums to get involved actively in these discussions? Yeah, look, ab- ab- absolutely. Um, you know, th- all of the major reinsurers and insurers are very focused on this subject. They've all been very engaged with thinking about how they report uh, and, and do their do their part. They have an important role to play, uh, both in you know looking at the losses that they have now, but but also in, in what's described as ensuring the transition. So one of the key aspects, particularly on the non-life side, is going to be how the insurance industry supports wider in uh, wider industry and economies as that transition transition to net zero happens across the globe uh, and the movement through into ensuring new companies new technologies uh, and and the innovation that will be required to provide the insurance coverage that may be required as people move through those those you know new and emerging technologies all of which are going to be very hard to price and think about that the risk of my gosh if anybody thinks that it's not an interesting industry to join i, I seriously these these are the things that are that this is the cutting edge this is the future I, as i'm listening and, and right making notes to myself as we're talking a lot of things are very future forward looking when we might assume that that's only coming into play when you're looking at my life insurance. So you know, it's only coming, you know, it, it doesn't come into insurance that often. But there's a, the, a a big emphasis on what, yes, what's happening now, but also we need to get to the future. Yeah, Helena, I often describe this. I mean, insurance makes an awful lot of the things in the world happen. There's many things in the world that can't happen. If you went back about 30 years, there was a big, there was a liability insurance crisis in Australia because of the amount of losses people were not, uh, providing uh, liability insurance in Australia. What that meant was that school fairs and local fates were all cancelled because they didn't have an ability to buy public liability insurance. It wasn't on offer. And all of a sudden, insurance in terms of how it enables life to continue comes into sharp relief as small children are unable to go and throw you know, rotten fruit at their teachers at a school <laughs> fair, right? Um <laughs> At the same time, you see that insurance has really been part of that that innovation of whether it be new construction, new technologies. It's very difficult if somebody is investing in a new business, let's say in hydrogen, to think about how that, or you know, maybe maybe a solution uh, in in part of the transition. People aren't going to be willing to put their capital at risk, whether or not that be investors or banks or other lenders, if they aren't protected against severe downside. And that's why insurers are a critical part of, you know, protecting people against bad things 
how things happen. It's very interesting. I was just talking to someone the other day about insuring uh, people who are financially vulnerable for not, not making the repayments as opposed to ramping up the interest rates to 1,700%, but actually find a new mechanism to help them make the payments if they look like they're, they're in, going to, to be in trouble. And it, it does impact all uh, every part of your life that you don't really think about on a daily basis. And in difficult economic times, which we are in now, once again, it's interesting to see where this also ranked in the survey uh, in terms of the macroeconomic situation. And maybe David or Kerry, you want to, to comment on uh, how that moved up or down the, the, the charts? This this survey, we should bear in mind, was taken towards uh, the middle of the year, approaching the end of summer, and things have obviously changed a bit since then. The the two main elements of, of, of economic risk are the outlook for the economy itself and also the behaviour of interest rates. Well, we have a divergent trend here. A concern about the macroeconomic outlook remains high uh, and has changed very little, but concern about interest rates has come down. And I think that that is because um, the outlook for interest rates is becoming much more certain now, uh, whereas the longer term outlook for economies, particularly with inflation still about, uh, remains uncertain. Thank you. And was it was it different in different parts of the world? So Asia, um, for, different to, to the North American response, for example? Uh, y yes. So industrial economies were generally more optimistic than those from the developing world. I think in Africa, this was rated the number one risk because of the fragility of local economies and um, potential knock-on of recession into political risk, whereas in Europe, it was number seven. So I think it was high everywhere, but there were some divergences. Very interesting. Okay. Um, and then the, the, the probably one of the... Um, little elephants in the room is is the post-COVID or is it a post-COVID almost a transitional COVID environment I suppose but it's never going to leave us now whereas I assume in, in, a, in an earlier report that would have been a, a, a much higher um, concern what what has been the, the results of the pandemic in, in, I mentioned early in the, in the introduction something about the new norm and the, what the pandemic may have shown us and do are people less concerned now or has that slipped and are we just trying to find ways to make it part of of um everyday business well uh, it, it came bottom of the list it was the lowest ranked of all uh the banana skins in this year's report um short memories <laughs> well it's partly that i think it's partly because the adjustment has proved easier in many cases than people thought we all imagine that working from home and all these kind of things will cause massive disruption, but from the, the responses we're getting, it doesn't seem to be the case. In fact, people are almost dismissive of COVID, at least as an operating risk. It's, it's obviously raised its ugly head in other terms of sort of medical and um, health insurance and so on. Uh, but uh, it's very striking and this is also borne out by the banking report that we did, where um, COVID risk is not seemed, at least the lingering effects of COVID, and not seem to be great. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it wasn't just bottom of the table; it was bottom of the table by a long way. If you look at the scores, um, and maybe there's an optimism bias. This sense of a new normal. Some respondents even said that it, the industry had emerged even stronger from the pandemic, and more innovative and risk aware. 
Um, th there were some specific concerns raised, though, and some people were thinking about it, um, particularly the lingering effects of long COVID on life, critical illness and disability insurance, and potentially a future pandemic. Um, some some respondents talked about a potential bird flu outbreak, for example, and the effects of a potential second wave of restrictions on the global economy. I think we maybe had touched on parts of this before as well, but um, I think a lot of the COVID-related risks, and actually maybe if I take a step back, my, my certain reflection would be the insurance industry um, managed incredibly well throughout the pandemic. I think the transition to things like, as David touched on, remote working and, and certainly some of the operational challenges um, weren't felt, I think, as much as initially feared. Um, I anticipate a lot of the risks related to the kind of the post-pandemic impacts as well. They will, have, to a certain extent, be subsumed into some of the other categories as well of the insurance banana skins risks. So whether it be the technology, for example, that we, we've already kind of touched on um, in quite a lot of detail, um, I, I definitely think there are some related risks that, um, I, as I was saying, I think my view at least that might be be kind of in part down to the or pushing the, the results in this particular banana skin coming out incredibly low. I, I, I think in, in initially when people were working from home as well, there was tech, there was cyber, there was the, the you know, the uh, uh, pe people not knowing how to protect themselves from home, talent obviously taking care of themselves. There were a lot of things at the, the beginning of it or probably into the first six months of it where people were unsure. We kind of now figured out some of those so i can imagine that but it's it's as back to the future forward uh thing it's good that people are thinking we should be prepared better for something that might come along um because we know that something will happen uh in the future um but not get to um <clears throat> it, it's not a it's not a an urgent immediate one anymore because of, of the where the world has changed um, COVID, as we said, is is the bottom of the list. And, but we've always found over the years it's very instructive to spend a bit more time looking at what is at the bottom of the list. Is it because it genuinely is a low risk or is it being overlooked or people being complacent about it? I don't know. The post-COVID thing, we'll just see how that turns out. I think it's very difficult to predict. But the one above that, the 23rd on the list, is corporate governance. Um, the governance of insurance companies, is it strong? Does it do its job well? Is it robust enough to, to do it? In the past, this has been a high concern. Governance has you know, been up in, in the single figures as, as a risk. Um, I, I feel it's worth dwelling on this just a bit longer, uh, if only because more than 80% of the respondents to the survey were actually from insurance companies in other words, the, the the industry talking to itself. Maybe if we had a, a larger a slug of, of non-practitioners, you'd find that there was more concern about uh, corporate governments. I, I, I mean, I think it's a little bit like, um, you know, th there there is a point around introspection, isn't there, on this and, and thinking about your own organisation rather than the risk. Mm. I think a lot of people in the industry, as they're filling in this survey, are very happy to comment on the risks that they see coming into their organisation from outside, rather than the risks that their organisation creates going out. And so therefore, I think they're perhaps a little bit more open and honest when they're thinking about those outside macro factors and when they're thinking about the inside factors, maybe a little bit uh, less likely to score things as high risk. Uh, 
the so I think there's just a human nature point in in that. Um, that said, we have had a relative relative period of stability amongst the insurance industry in terms of the stability of organisations. There have been a few failures. Uh, many of those failures are associated with governments, but there haven't been any particularly high-profile ones in the last decade. We could all pick one in different territories where things have happened. There have definitely been corporate governance failures involved with many of those. So I think I think it's a combination of two facts. It would be, it would be very interesting if we were to take a pure regulator's view, perhaps, of these risks and think about how these rate I think they will look very differently. Um, and as a, as a regulatory practitioner, I know that in many of the letters that regulators write to insurers throughout the year across the globe, governance rates pretty highly in terms of the areas that are seen as, as, as being risks. Helen, I wonder if I could pick up one of the other risks that Go ahead. come in, because it's one that we haven't focused on a lot. It's another one that's lower down the list. And it was another new risk that was added this year, which was deglobalization. So overall in the survey, that came in at number 19, nothing particularly to speak about. However, when we looked at doing a reinsurance cut of this data, that then leapt to number nine. And that's quite an interesting difference in, in part of the 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 the, the uh, you know sort of a subsector of insurance. And I think it's one that's just worth worth noting. The key reason for that would say, you know, we thought deglobalization, and obviously that's been a real topic uh, of of debate amongst you know uh, practitioners in many industries and how different political forces have impacted, different economic forces have impacted companies. What you find in this is that most insurance companies aren't particularly concerned about deglobalization because insurance predominantly is a is an intraterritorial. Uh, aspect you need to be regulated in a local country and that doesn't particularly change for domestic insurers where it does change is where people are writing insurance on a cross-border basis and most of that happens in the reinsurance sector so that's where we suddenly see the, the, the you know the ability to write insurance in other countries to write reinsurance in other countries and that interconnectedness geographically and globally of the insurance sets is very important and where people see that risk. So if we were to see any particular change in macro politics around access to markets, that's where we could potentially see the risk. And I think it's an, you know, a, a, noteworthy, a noteworthy change in that risk landscape. Very interesting that it it's um, the lens that you uh, apply to a certain extent. So reinsurance in this case changes the view what what i'd say is that you know over the past 10 to 15 years we've seen an emphasis on the financial crisis followed by the response to the crisis um macroeconomic factors in mid 2010s and then towards the later part of the 2010s really an emphasis on technology risk cybercrime, and climate change and i'm sure ai is going to be a big part of that conversation in the future where governance risks in post-2008 were in the top 10, I think even in the top five, they've now gone to the bottom of the survey. So there is a real market discrepancy between how the risks have moved over time. 
it's it's it, uh, and I'm and I'm thinking about Anthony saying that you know this is 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 introspective and uh, it, you're thinking about the impact on your own organization, um, and so all of the things that you just mentioned here, the you know all the all the different um, areas that made people think in one way or another with a greater impact makes sense in the logical flow. And I agree with you, and I'm sure you all think that the AI, well, let's see, what do we think? What do we think will be, If will there be something new in, in the 10th edition or will, are we are we thinking that AI will be the thing that, that continues to occupy people's minds along with uh, climate risk and cybersecurity? Or is there something that, that might come that we haven't thought of yet? I think it's going to be interesting. You know, we're going to have an awful lot of political changes potentially between now and the next survey. So, you know, uh, 23 to 25, the the world could be very different from a, a both political and economic perspective. So it'd be very interesting to see what changes that may have as we have potential changes in leadership across many uh, mm. developed nations. So mm. I think that's what to watch. Mm. Yeah, having having looked at the comments over recent editions, I expect climate risk to get even more urgent as insurers try and grapple with those big questions around how to price risks and whether these risks are even insurable. And then I also think we're going to hear a lot more about AI. So everything from how generative AI is used in the end-to-end -end insurance process to how more and more granular risk profiling, like in the case of medical insurance, will affect Risk pooling. It's been a very interesting uh, discussion, uh, not just about the uh, the banana skins itself, but more broadly about how these risks play out within within the industry and how they impact internally, but also how they impact the value chain, the supply chain, the customer, the end user customer, and of course the bigger picture in terms of the geopolitical and the macroeconomic risks as well. What I am buoyed by, and I think everyone who's listening to this, I hope you feel the same, is that. I, I haven't left the report or this discussion with filled with any kind of um, gloom and doom and fear and uh, you know pessimism. I've actually felt there are a lot of future uh, plans in place being developed, future thinking in place being developed while trying to deal with the current issue, which is a great thing. Uh, that's not just in technology, but that's also in uh, in terms of talent. Uh, and and also collaboration and looking how people can work together. It feels very balanced and very positive and very um, forward thinking to me. And I think that's a, that's a wonderful thing. So for for all the, you know, we're we're ta obviously we're talking about banana skins. We're talking about challenges. We're talking about risks, and we're we're in a in a in an industry that's dealing with risk all the time, acknowledging it, dealing with it, mitigating it. You know, uh, it's you would expect that it might be a bit more of a pessimistic discussion. But in fact, I found this very hopeful, very positive, very proactive, very hands-on, very much something that's happening. Whereas I think it, you it, you might have thought that some things weren't actually being, being um, developed or, I don't know, in, in place to, to, to be able to respond. When I look at, you know, the response uh, companies that we we're talking about, um, when we we spoke about you know hacking yourself for example yes that's happening but it's also not ignoring what's what needs to be happening in terms of data breaches and in terms of ensuring uh, the the organizations using data in certain ways and also your own people using data so it's it's a very present and future discussion and I know that the report is looking at two years but I feel like 
um, this is has has is full of optimism and it's it's with with the balance of understanding the world we live in now so i want to thank everyone thank you to all of our guests today andy alex david keo uh, and to the uh, libf and csfi for hosting us today you can find all the details on the websites and where you download your podcasts from please get involved feedback let us know more about what you'd like to hear as well thank you everyone Thank you.